Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, it is my great pleasure to have in the studio with me, Martika Sawin. Nice to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here in this place that I knew nothing about, even though I had spent years in Yarmouth. Oh, what were you doing in Yarmouth? Well, my parents, uh, back in the 1940s, uh, bought a farm in Yarmouth on Greeley Road. Beautiful old brick house, still there, but it's, as, as they did in those days, the house was built too close to the road, and, and so eventually my parents uh, moved elsewhere. But he was uh, with the um, another old main institution, the Bates Manufacturing Company in Lewiston, and uh, so he could commute to Lewiston from from Yarmouth. So I, I was actually... I didn't spend that much time there because I was already almost grown up when they when they acquired the farm. But my children have loved that place all all these years, and I don't know who it belongs to now, but it's a wonderful place. And my youngest daughter was actually married in that church on Meeting House Road. It's called still called, I think it's called Hillside Avenue. It runs from away from Greeley Road, and there's a little old frame meeting house, and that's where my youngest daughter was married. It's a lovely church. I used to live very close to that. Actually, oh really? Yes, just yeah. down the hill. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're you're connected to Yarmouth. Tell me about your greater Maine connection. How, how you you've been in Maine for quite a while, I think. So, uh, yeah. Um, well, it seems like always. Okay. <laughs> Basically, although I, I was born in New York, and uh, but my and my father uh, grew up in New York on the Upper West Side, commuted by subway to a school in Brooklyn, and he was an only child, and so his parents sent him to a camp in Maine, White Mountain Camp on Sebago Lake, and uh, it was paradise for him, and he never, never forgot. It was always a part of his, you know, his childhood dream. So when, when he and my mother were married, he insisted that they go on their honeymoon to Maine. It happened to be January. And <laughs> they went, they stayed in the, at the Manha- mansion house over in Poland Springs, the, the big, huge, and uh, typical resort inn in Poland Springs uh, had was not open in the winter, but they, there was another place there anyway. And they hitchhiked over to Lake Sebago. And, of course, my mother had heard all about this paradise. And there was nothing but a dreary expanse of ice and snow when they got there. Anyway, so they, uh, but we always came to Maine when he had vacations. We would come there in the summer and go to places like Migas Lodge on Lake Sebago or up to Moosehead Lake and so on. But I don't know. That doesn't explain how I got here. I'm not sure. Um, but you're here now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, my my children, you know, loved Maine, and and so we would come on vacations, and then I promised them when I was able to, I would. Uh, we were after my, they were very sad when my parents sold their farm, so uh, I went as soon as I was able to. I bought a farm over in um, New Gloucester. Over, you know, you know where, where that is. It's yes, a, I have a sister who lives out there. Pardon? I have a sister who lives in New Gloucester. Oh, really? Yes. Do you know the road she lives on? Uh, Doherty Road. Maybe Doughty Road, they call it. Yes, Doughty Road. Doughty mm-hmm. Road. Yeah. Uh, 
I, my farm was on, uh, in fact, my m one of my daughters still owns it and lives there, um, on uh, Cobbsbridge Road. And it was a road that was first settled when the, when the people moved from Gloucester, Massachusetts, and founded New Gloucester. They were given a land grant from the king of England, and, and they could eat. The requirement was they each had to uh, have tilled two acres and built a house and a church uh, in the first, I think, around five years that they lived there. So, so that road, uh, Cobbs Ridge Road, has um, houses that were on it that were built in the 18—no, no, excuse me, right around 1700—1800. I'm sorry, I'm getting— uh, <laughs> dates and years mixed up, but they were colonial era houses and they're still there. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful spot in New Gloucester. And amazingly, that it's located about just between um, uh, Portland and Lewiston, but that particular area has not been built up. And uh, it's it, right now, it's still beautifully intervale between the, um, the two uh, townships is, is, is still pristine, but I don't know for how long. It is a beautiful part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm, I'm very interested in the work that you've done over the years with art and being an art. Would you consider yourself an art critic, an art historian? What would you describe yourself to be? Uh, basically, uh, I usually say an art critic and historian. I have a degree in a graduate degree in art history, uh, but I, I came to it by chance. My first husband was a, an artist, and I, we met in Paris, um, where he was studying uh, with Fernand Leger, and I, I was also taking uh, studying art, art, art history there in Paris. And we we um, came back to the United States and went directly to Iowa, and the, Iowa has an interesting place for. Uh, Art at that time, it was the uh, where Grant Wood lived, and where Grant Wood had a a, a kind of school school there, and uh, uh, the University of Iowa, which was quite a wonderful place, um, was one of the first places to because of Grant Wood to give a um, graduate degree in in painting, um, the uh, you know an MFA at, at that time. This is to say. Mid 1940s, the MFA did not exist as a, you couldn't get a graduate degree in painting of all things. Well, I, Iowa was very smart, like other universities, uh, and saw potential in the GI Bill, because all the people who had been who were veterans from the Second World War had a, a year or more of, of uh, college education for every year they'd been in the service. And uh, so how could the universities go, get into that, <laughs> uh, you know, ladder, so to speak? And uh, they could give a graduate degree in painting. It was unheard of at the time. Uh, you went to an, If you wanted to be an artist, you might just go and be apprenticed to an artist, or you'd go to an art school. But to get a go to get a college degree, to pay your living expenses and your art materials and everything, uh, you know, the, the, the GI Bill was really what put a kind of 
platform under um, art in America. I mean, it really, all of a sudden, there were all these newly hatched artists, and it was a very interesting time, because these were, uh, I actually finished my senior year of college there, and going to school with these veterans was really, you know, very stimulating and interesting, and, and you were not, you know, not just like a you own no, normal undergraduate. These were serious, grown-up people, and... Uh, so anyhow, so I was at uh, Iowa, and there was a very good art historian there that I studied with, and um, uh, we came back to, to New York after I f finished my just one year of getting my uh, degree, and did New York was 1946 seven, uh, you know, was fl flooded with uh, ex uh, with veterans and uh, going to the. School, you may have known the artist Hans Hoffman had a well-known school in New York. There were other, there was, a, you know, a bunch of art students living in one place. So there was a lot of young artists uh, in New York looking to uh, form cooperative galleries or just looking for a way to tap into their GI Bill allotments. And uh, it was a very, very interesting uh, development of a whole new kind of society of artists uh, there in New York City and in fact uh, many uh, you know living on a very s low stipend from the from the Veterans Administration and uh, living in uh, lofts and and uh, tenements and so on on the Lower East Side of Manhattan so uh, I needed to get a job and uh, so I I remember standing uh, I was familiar with the with the Museum of Modern Art, which was um, started in the uh, 30s, uh, the 1930s, um, and it had a new building, just um, uh, just built a new, very modern-looking building on 53rd Street in a property that had belonged to the Rockefeller family, was the real. Um, engine behind the Museum of Modern Art. Anyway, they, uh, so I remember uh, we had got, found a loft to live in, but they, we had no telephone. So I remember standing on a street corner there on the Lower East Side, around by tenements, and, and calling, uh, dialing the Museum of Modern Art and uh, uh, say, asking to speak to the personnel department. And so uh, they connected me, and I told them that, uh, you know, it was, I had graduated from the University of Iowa in their well-known art department and and art history, and I and I said, uh, and I can I can type forty words a minute, <laughs> and she said, come and see me tomorrow, and I did, and I was given a, a really wonderful job at the museum, and running there. Uh, I was the executive secretary for their junior council, which was made up of future trustees, sort of a training ground for trustees. And the trustees uh, considered mainly people from New York's rich and famous uh, families. And uh, so uh, they, they had to give them something to do. They had this, all these uh, people sitting around being the junior council, but they had to have some. So they had, uh, one of the projects was to start an art lending service, and I was the executive secretary for the junior council, and I was in charge of setting up the museum's art lending service, which is something nobody was doing in those days. The idea that you could, they, they wanted to encourage people to buy paintings, 
and to think they could own a painting, and so uh, that you could uh, rent a painting and see if you liked it. And if you liked it and wanted to live with it, then you, the, the rental fee was deductible from the purchase price. So people actually bought paintings that way. I don't know if you ever uh, gotten into anything like that with your gallery, but uh, uh, it, it worked. It worked quite well. And I had this little mini museum. The works were not from the museum's collection. Uh, they couldn't, you know, rent out donated paintings. So, uh, but it, they were on consignment from galleries. So in that way, uh, I got to in a short time, be quite familiar with New York's galleries, which at that time was not a huge amount, but there were still quite a few uh, viable galleries then around 1950. And uh, so I was in charge of taking these works from the galleries. And, 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 and then at that time, the museum just built its annex. And so it had our top floor gallery space had its own private elevator, I remember one day that elevator door opened and out, stopped, out stepped Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, and he had come to visit uh, Edgar Kaufman, who was the son of the Kaufman family who built Falling Water, uh, a well-known Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright building. And uh, uh, he, 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 Wright had come to see Edgar Kaufman, but he, he, Wright did not like art very much. And he, uh, here I had this space with small sculptures standing around and paintings on the wall. And he, he shook his, his walking staff that he had. He said, what is all this stuff, he said. And, and uh, uh, with his you know, distaste for artworks, which interfered with the, with the pure look of the architecture. Uh, and other, you know, we had a lot of other distinguished visitors coming through, but... But Wright was the most obnoxious of them, anyhow. So I would, I would, you know, show people the artworks and pack them in very nicely designed packing cases, and off they would go. So that, and then also the other part of that, the junior council was also asked to sponsor a series of events in the museum auditorium, which was down in the in the basement of the museum, uh, the auditorium where they showed mostly the, where they showed old movies. And uh, the subway was right underneath, so it was always interrupted. But we had some really interesting events. Uh, uh, one of a series of uh, uh, one of the lectures, or was a symposium uh, called "What Abstract Art Means to Me." People were just becoming, you know, familiar with abstraction um, in New York and having abstract art even shown in some of the galleries and so on. So uh, we had, who was on that? William de Kooning and Robert Motherwell and uh, who else? Um, I can't remember. For four of the up-and-coming abstract expressionist painters. Uh, Pollock was there, but he didn't, he didn't speak of that thing. I did spend actually an evening with, with Jackson Pollock and his wife Lee Krasner, just just the two of them and and the woman who uh, who invited us. Um, and it was Pollock didn't say anything all the evening. It was one of his sober moments. He just leaned against 
I still can't remember if it was a bookshelf or a mantelpiece that he was just leaning against and, and saying nothing. And uh, Lee Krasner sat in the middle of the floor and talked very animatedly. Uh, she, she usually had to be the spokesman for Pauling. But things like that were some of the things that happened when, uh, when I worked at the museum. However, it didn't last too long because I began having a family. <laughs> and and uh, in those days, it was uh, you didn't get paid enough for the kind of work I was doing uh, to have a, be able to afford full-time uh, child care. So, uh, but I continued what I did then, because I had all this knowledge of the galleries and, and the contemporary, who was showing, you know, in the contemporary art scene, um, I um, started writing for art magazines and... Uh, that's what I did for quite a while. So and how did uh, you get interested in the surrealism in Exile, the book that you wrote about? How did you get interested in that subject? Well, it wasn't, to start with, one of my major interests, uh, but it, it, it was getting attention at that time because of the the surrealist refugees who were then in, were living in New York and were showing, at, uh, in, in there were a number of uh, pre-war gallery people uh, from Europe who came to New York and reopened, uh, particularly there were some very good German dealers uh, who, who were in New York, uh, who opened uh, galleries and, and uh, artists were drawn to that whole uh, gallery milieu, some of the refugee artists and so on. But what actually happened uh, was, again, some, the best things happened by chance. Um, my uh, uh, husband at the time had been a, a student of, of, of Meyer Shapiro and had become uh, very close to, to Meyer. And uh, uh, Meyer Shapiro suggested that I might be helpful to one of the uh, refugee artists whose name was Kurt Seligman. He was a Swiss surrealist. Um, and uh, that uh, uh, Meyer wanted to be sure that, that Seligman's uh, papers and whatever were uh, um, being taken care of. And his, uh, Seligman had, had died, he'd actually committed suicide, uh, shot himself there in a, up in Orange County, New York, and they had settled in a little farm there. Anyway, so uh, he wanted me to go and look. So I called the widow, Arlette Seligman, a little tiny French woman. Neither she nor Court Seligman were more than five feet tall, I think. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, and she was actually a, Wild a Wildenstein uh, from the art dealing family in in Paris that then established a New York gallery. Um, tell me if you want me to stop <laughs> talking no, too much or too no, long. No, keep going. And anyway, so uh, I called Arlette, and and uh, she was wary of people coming to look at, at, at what they had there. They, they, he had had a quite a good collection of artworks, and she was afraid people were coming wanting to get hold of those artworks. Anyhow, um, she said, all right, you can come. I, I lived in, in um, Nyack, New York at that time, which was not that far from Sugarloaf, New York, uh, which is about 
50 miles beyond New York City. And uh, so uh, she said I could come and see her and, and uh, talk with her. So I drove up there, and uh, it was a little remote, kind of a hamlet, Sugarloaf was. Uh, and I met Arlette, who was very... Uh, I forget when she was born, but she was quite old then and, 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 and somewhat crippled, uh, uh, living there in isolation. Uh, although uh, no heat in her house, and, and uh, no, she did have a big wood stove to cook on. She could have had anything. The Wildenstein's were a very prosperous, art-dealing family for several generations in, in Europe. Uh, but anyway, this is the way she lived. Um, so we were. She was showing around that what she really liked were, were she had some sheep and goats on the place. She was more, much more interested in them than the paintings or anything else that was there. Anyway, so we went in the old barn, which had a stone foundation, and then there was a big barn building on top. And I went down in the stone foundation and had a dirt floor. And it was quite damp. And there were boxes of papers. And I said, oh, Arlette, look at, look at this. These are all papers from, you know, from, from Europe. And what, what are you going to do with them? And she, she didn't, wasn't interested. She was not interested in most things. Uh, so she said, take them. And so I put these soggy, you know, soggy boxes of paper, cardboard boxes of papers in my car. And she said someone else in Brooklyn had taken uh, one or two boxes. And uh, uh, so I got that person's name, and that person was no longer interested. So I went out to Brooklyn and picked those up. And as I dried them out and began to look at them, these were letters written mostly during the war, from people trying to get out of Europe or some of the artists who had already gotten to the United States trying to help people get out. And, uh, and then uh, they went on to after what went on as they came to know some of the American artists. And uh, uh, Motherwell was one of the people that studied with, with uh, uh, Seligman, took art lessons with Seligman, uh, hadn't known anything about art before. Anyhow, so... Uh, as I, you know, unfolded these letters, I realized that something had to be done with them. There was this story that had to be told. This exodus, the help that was given from the United States, and the, and also that wasn't given, uh, and um, how they sort of how American artists came to know them, and anyhow. So that is the basis of of that book. I didn't know in the beginning it was going to be a, a book. But what it, le it led me to wonderful uh, acquaintances and friendships with some of those refugee artists. One of them was an artist named André Masson, who I think is one of the, was one of the really most outstanding of the surrealists. Uh, oh, the, the, the door, the wall, stone wall of the barn where I found these papers. Uh, had Marcel Duchamp one day visiting the Seligmans, uh, for some reason, had uh, taken a gun and shot five bullet holes into the stone wall of the barn. So they, they made a, some kind of mark and indentation. 
So I just took out my camera and photographed it. And uh, uh, that became quite famous because that was uh, the, the Surrealists, when they had an exhibition in the first ex big exhibition they had in New York, it was called First Papers of Surrealism. And the cover of the catalog, you may have seen it sometime, had a, a photograph with five holes punched in it, which were where Marcel Duchamp had, had um, uh, you know, fired his, his five bullets. And it's now been plastered over, but the people who live around there said people came all the time to see that, uh, that Duchamp wall. And uh, so that's the kind of thing that I would, you know, run into. And, and fortunately, uh, you know, and had the prior knowledge to see that these things were worth saving and preserving. Someone else might have just thrown them out. Or let herself uh, would probably have thrown them out. So that's how it came to be, and that was the the basis. You'll see. I think in, in there there is a photograph of the, and I really I chose this back for the cover, uh, and uh, the, it, because it is a sort of surrealist portrayal of what happened here. Uh, come, the, uh, this sort of represents surrealism with its paintbrush. Uh, coming from the brain or the guts or whatever of the, of the artist and making marks on the canvas. But what comes out is an abstract painting. And so it, re it really is a kind of graphic illustration of what was taking place. So you came to it by chance, it sounds like. Pardon? You came to it by chance. Yeah. Yes. The whole thing. The whole thing. What about Monhegan? What is your connection to well, Monhegan? That's, that's earlier. Well, we can we can skip back if you if that's you don't mind. Uh, uh, as I said, I was assigned because uh, I was writing for art magazines and so on, uh, and I was asked to uh, probably by by Rubens' dealer, who was a very good dealer at the time, Charles Allen, uh, who worked with um, one of the one of the New York's early uh, art dealers, a woman. What was her name? Well, you would know the name, I think. Anyhow, they asked me if I would uh, write an article for the magazine on Reuben Tam. Now, Reuben had come from Hawaii. After, when, he, when Reuben was uh, in high school in Hawaii, he had a copy of Moby Dick, uh, one of the modern, modern library um, editions of, of Moby Dick, which with illustrations by Rockwell Kent. And those are illustrations dealing with whaling and the whaling industry out of New England and, and so on. And so uh, Reuben, seeing these wonderful woodcut illustrations, um, determined that he, he would have to get to Monhegan, where Rockwell Kent, who was really one of Maine's outstanding artists, actually he was from New York, but uh, he lived and worked in Maine and identified partly at least with Maine. Anyway... Um, so, so uh, Reuben was determined he had to go to the place where Rockwell Kent lived, where he did the illustrations. Mount Hegan was not a year-round community at the time. Rockwell Kent uh, lived there in the, it would have been in the early 20th century, and he dug wells for a living. Uh, and uh, there had been a few artists, uh, probably like N.C. Wyeth and a couple of others, who came and, and, and worked on Mount Hegan in the later part of the, of the 19th century. 
or, or pass through there. You wouldn't really settle there year-round. It's a very small year-round community of mostly of fishermen. Um, so uh, it, it, it developed more and more as a place that artists would go. They'd leave New York in, in the summer and go to Monhegan, and where there were other artists and the congenial uh, place and, and where the, you know, it was a beautiful area in which to paint. Uh, Monhegan is, t- t- it's the old, it's the uh, f- furthest point of land uh, toward Europe that uh, uh, inhabited by uh, um, Americans. I'm not saying that right, but I know it, and, and, uh, if you wanted to, uh, you weren't really leaving in the United States. That Monhegan is part, it's actually part of the national seashore, but uh, it's 10 miles out to sea. If you take the boat that goes now daily to Monhegan, uh, you'll see whales and porpoises and so on, and you come to a rocky island and uh, which, on which there isn't that much vegetation and no cars, except there is one one sort of van or truck that will carry people's stuff from the dock. To, to, this is, only one side of Monhegan is inhabited, and there are little cottage kind of houses there. Uh, and there were a couple of inns, one called the Trailing U, and, and uh, uh, it was a general store, but not much, not much else. And no electricity, uh, although they had and eventually a generator that made a lot of noise and provided electricity. The cottages were all clustered together on one uh, on one side of the island. And the other side, you could follow trails across to the other side of the island, which was facing Europe. Uh, and they were big basalt cliffs, black basalt cliffs, uh, and the waves crashing on the on the cliffs below. And a very dramatic uh, landscape. Where the the side where you landed was more sheltered and protected, um, but it was a great terrain for artists who wanted to be immersed in the landscape and 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 paint in it, and and it was just a you know a, a idyllic uh, place, uh, rugged and wild, and yet you could still manage to live there. Uh, it was an artist. Um, who really hasn't had the recognition he should have had, named Alan Gusso, uh, who uh, became a, f- a friend and learned from Reuben Tam the secrets of having, how to live, all this bare, live off the bare land. And Alan uh, became, uh, he and, and his uh, wife were great uh, proselytizers for vegetarianism, and she became quite well-known as a uh, a food, healthy food expert. Uh, And, uh, but Alan, uh, you know, painted this landscape, wonderful paintings. There is a very small museum on Monhegan that has artworks, and Portland Museum has a couple of good Gusso paintings, and uh, uh, unfortunately, Alan, died of pancreatic cancer when he was less than 60, I think. And his widow 
was involved with her own nutrition science reputation and so on. And she never did much about his work. He did have a, a, a gallery in New York that showed it, but his work hasn't been seen enough. The Portland Museum has a couple of very good examples of it. He was a good, good uh, painter of the landscape. But he also was a, a great proselytizer for uh, conservation. And um, uh, he, there was a time... This is we're now north of New York, New York in the Hudson Valley, up up the river a little bit. Uh, there was a, a power company wanted to build a big power plant at a place called Storm King on the on the Hudson, ways up the Hudson, uh, which would have destroyed this wonderful uh, landscape. And uh, uh, Alan, who was a real activist, Alan Gusso. Uh, got Bobby Kennedy, who was then the senator from New York, to come and walk along the Hudson Highlands with him and look at look at this place and, and begin advocating to have it made a national preserve and not destroyed by the power plant. And that's why it still looks very good up there. So, um, and as I say, his his work uh, isn't, isn't well enough known. Uh, I did a big book on him. After he died, the they commissioned me to do a book, and it's it's, uh, but it hasn't circulated enough, and it, it's, it's too big and heavy. Uh, his his brother was a theater critic for the New York Times. Mel Gusso was no longer alive. In fact, I guess Alan's two sons are still alive, but uh, nobody's really done very much. You know, you being in the business, you know, unless you have a devoted. Uh, artist's widow, the estate doesn't go very far. And, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, artist's widows are... Milton, Milton Avery's widow is one of the most aggressive that I remember in, in, in promoting Milton's reputation. Anyhow, so anything else you'd like, like to talk about? No, I, I'm very happy that you've been willing to come in and talk to me about just even a small portion of all of the work that you've done over the course of your career. It's very impressive. It's been fun. I tell you, it's, it's, you know, I have stacks of journals that I kept when I visited artist studios, because in those days, early on, we, we would sometimes uh, review, go to see a work before the show was hanging on the gallery walls, uh, so that the review would come out at the same time the show was up, because uh, it tended to come, come out later, as they do the, these days often, or they're very late into, you know, after the show has been taken down. Uh, but in those days, so I would go to the studio, and I would look at the works with the artists or with the, de with the dealer or whoever, and we'd talk, and I'd make a lot of notes on these things, and I have all those notebooks, and I... Wish I knew one. <laughs> I started to do a, 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 a catalog of, of my own modest collection with quotes from the artists on, you know, to go with each, but I haven't gotten that far. So, uh, and I still think, you know, it's, it's at least somehow, you're probably familiar with the Archives of American Art. They have done a wonderful job of collecting uh, studio journals and notes and so forth, and they're accessible. You can make an appointment and go there either to the headquarters in Washington or they have an office in New York, and you can read them on, uh, you know, these turn of things. Uh, or um, they have photocopies of notebooks. It's a wonderful resource. 
But I haven't been able to organize my material well enough. The, the archives wants to come and look at it, but I, my papers are... I left New York after the pandemic uh, without really organizing my departure very well, and things were a, a, a jumble, and it's hard for me to face it. Well, I appreciate your coming here today to talk to me. And you clearly have so much more to talk about. I hope that at some point you get things organized. And well, thank you for asking me because not everybody wants to know all these things. Well, if we, I would, I could sit here all day with you, but I appreciate this this amount of time that you've been able to spend with me today. I've really, I've really learned a lot. So thank you. Well, I, I love t- teaching and being able to communicate some of this, at least to my students. And I did start uh, a summer school for arts and design students in Paris um, and could use a lot of material in connection with that. It's still going, actually. I don't have anything to do with it now, but it's still there still is a Parsons in Paris. And I must say, I must say that was a lot of fun also. I've been speaking with Martika Sawin, who is an art historian and critic with many, many... Um, wonderful books and articles, published pieces, and also teachings to her to her name. I hope someday we will be able to actually see this in the archives. It will all get organized. But in the meantime, I appreciate uh, you coming in and talking with me today. So, well, I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you know, everybody wants to talk about their memories as they get older and looks for a receptive audience. Well, We are a receptive audience, and and I know that it was a lot of work for you to get here, so I acknowledge that 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 was a thing, and I appreciate everybody who made that possible. Uh 